And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Oh, one thing I meant to mention in the announcements is I, there will be copies of the sermon back there by the, there, by the hand washing thing in case you want to have it because some people find it easier to read along um, while I'm doing it or if you want to read it over again afterward. Uh, so that's, those are right back there. Okay, about, uh, let's see, about 15 years ago. Did, did you want to get a copy? Yeah, you're... I'm listening good. Okay, good, good. Okay, so about, I think about 2004, a movie came out called Garden State. And in it, uh, Andrew Large Largeman. He's got to fly from L.A. where he waits on tables between acting gigs, back home to his wealthy New Jersey suburb where he grew up. He has to do this because his mother has died. And the film presents Large as in a bit of a, a haze, not just because of his mother's death, but because of these anti-anxiety medications that he has to take. But when he gets home, he spends time with his old high school friends. And they have not changed much over the last 10 years, except for having more money. He also meets a quirky and charming young woman named Sam, played by Natalie Portman. And the other thing about Sam is that she has a tendency to make things up. She's a bit of a liar at times. However, as it turns out, the more time that Large and Sam spend together, the less compelled Sam feels to compensate for her insecurities by fibbing. And Large, meanwhile, stops taking his medication. It's not that everything is perfect or everything makes sense. It's still, their lives are still a little messy, but they find that they can live with that. Anyway, while all this is going on, the, lo the local news tells a story that there's been a discovery of this large crevasse in a rock quarry nearby. And the geologist that's interviewed for the story claims that they have yet to determine how deep this crevasse goes. And large Sam and another high school friend named Mark, they 
they end up going to the site to go to see the crevasse. And they meet Albert, the geologist. Large asks, how do, deep do you think it goes? I like to think that it's bottomless, says Albert. Just an infinite abyss. And, and Large likes that idea too. In fact, later as they're saying goodbye, Large says, good luck exploring the infinite abyss. And Albert replies, thanks, you too. And Large, but then sort of, it resonates with him. In fact, rather than following his friends out of the rock quarry, he turns around and he climbs up on this, this old steam shovel and he stares over into the abyss and just screams. And, and Sam and Mark, they, they, they turn and they're sort of curious for a moment. But then they get it too and they climb up next to him and, and they, they, all three of them, stand over the edge and just scream into the infinite abyss. There are three people who find themselves in a world that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But large, refused to go, refuses to go through it in a medicated stupor. And Sam refuses to tell herself lies and others' lies in order to make, to compensate for her own inadequacies. No, that, that life, life is lived on the edge of an infinite abyss. Just scream into it, defy it. When the disciples come to Jesus, looking for instruction on prayer, Jesus doesn't say, you know, find some bottomless crevasse and scream into the void, into the vast, infinite nothingness. No, Jesus assumes prayers, whether whispered or screamed, written or simply thought, have a recipient, a listener. In fact, he goes much farther than that. I mean, if you find it a stretch that you could find a, a crevasse in New Jersey that might be infinitely deep, what Jesus claims is far more radical. According to Jesus, our words don't just echo into an empty void. There is an infinite someone listening. Jesus teaches us to address that listener as our Father in heaven. Now, the truth is that for some, the idea of praying to a Father in heaven differs very little from the idea of screaming into an infinite abyss. Some of us here may have grown up never having known our Father. I mean, they may never have been around, or maybe they were around, but still never really there, never really available in any sort of meaningful way. And of course, there, there are those for whom an infinite abyss, abyss is, is preferable to the father they knew. That said, many of us have had good fathers, not in the sense that they were perfect, but in the sense that they did their best to provide a secure environment for us to grow up in. But even then, even then, relationships to fathers are complicated. At some point or another, you have to reckon with, you have to come to terms with the fact that your father was only human. A healthy assessment 
of our fathers requires more than gratitude. It requires some forgiveness, which isn't always easy. There's a poet, Dick, Lo uh, Dick Laurie. He, ref he has a poem about this, reflecting on how, on all the ways fathers require forgiveness. It goes like this. Maybe for leaving us too often or forever when we were little. Maybe for scaring us with unexpected rage or making us nervous because there seemed never to be any rage there at all. For marrying or not marrying our mothers. For divorcing or not divorcing our mothers. And shall we forgive them for their excesses of warmth or coldness? Shall we forgive them for pushing or leaning or shutting doors for speaking only through layers of cloth or never speaking or never being silent. In our age or in theirs or, or in their deaths, saying it to them or not saying it. And then we reach the last line of the poem, which I think is kind of a remarkable line. I mean, it strikes me sort of a confession as to why we find it hard to, uh, why we might find it hard to simply accept the humanity of our fathers and forgive them. He writes, this is the line, if we forgive our fathers, what is left? In other words, if we let them off the hook for the ways they let us down, then what? The fear is that we just, we, then we're just left with a void, an infinite abyss to shout into. You know, I first heard that poem about 20 years ago. It was read at the conclusion of the film, Smoke Signals, as one of the characters is pouring the ashes of his own father off a bridge into the Rio Grande. It, that scene hit me then. I mean, obviously it stuck with me that 20 years later, here I am thinking about it again as I work on this sermon. But it hit me differently this time. I heard it the first time as a son. I heard it this time as a, a father, as someone who knows he needs to be forgiven. And when I think about all that, I think, boy, Jesus, are you sure? Are you sure, are you sure that's, that's the image you want to go with? That's, that's how you want to start this prayer off with such a complicated title? I mean, it's not as though mothers would be any less complicated. You know, and as I thought about it, I think, well, Jesus is aware of how complicated relationships between fathers and their children can be. I mean, where is Joseph, right? Last time he shows up in the, the Gospels, Jesus is at 12. Well, where'd he go? And yet it does not keep Jesus from using the term father. Using it here and in lots of other places. He often refers to the father or my father. But here it's our father. And that our may be the most profound pronoun in human history. It changes everything. We don't address, we don't address the father in heaven some abstract, idealized version of a father. We don't address my father in heaven as though God were my personal possession, a father of my own choosing. No, it's our father. We don't pray as an only child, 
Prayer is a family undertaking. God is yours and mine and theirs. Our Father. But that's not all that who is included in that hour. It includes Jesus himself. He does not teach us a prayer that protects and emphasizes his particular relationship with the Father. No, he, he says ours. When you pray, pray as one with the same status as, with God that I have. God is ours, says Jesus, our Father. However, to, sh to say that this prayer underscores our shared standing with the Father does not mean that we have that we all have the same understanding of who God is as Father. To accept this invitation to claim God as your, as your Father requires moving beyond our limited conceptions of fatherhood. What does it mean that God is our Father? We have to look to Jesus to understand that. We have to look to Jesus' relationship with the Father. If we try to understand the fatherhood of God on our own, we're bound to have an understanding complicated by our own relationships to our own fathers. Uh, Philip Pullman, the author of The Golden Compass, I think that's what he's best known for, more recently published a novel uh, which is a retelling of the Gospels. For instance, he includes the scene uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as in Scripture, Jesus goes there to pray. As in the Scriptures, he's in great distress while he's doing it, knowing that his betrayal is coming. And as in the Scriptures, the prayer is the same. He begs God for some other way, some way out of the suffering that is coming. And in the novel, as in the Gospels itself, it becomes clear that there is no other way. In the novel, it is at this point that Jesus becomes an atheist. After all, Jesus had lived his life faithfully. He'd been good. He'd done all the good he was capable of. And now here he was in need, begging for some sort of in intervention and it was like those prayers went nowhere, like they were shouted into an infinite abyss. I mean, I get it, I get, I can see where that might make sense. I can see where some people might wanna conclude. I'd rather conclude that there is no God than believe in a God who heard that cry and refused to respond. I'll take no father over that father. But that's not the story the Gospels tell. In the Gospels, Jesus concludes his prayer by saying, but not my will, yours be done. After all, Jesus came to do the Father's will. That's his mission. When Jesus teaches us to pray to our Father, 
He's not merely using a pronoun to tell us a nice lie and help us overlook life's insecurities and chaos to blind us to the abyss. No, that personal pronoun, that pronoun is at the heart of his mission. He came to make my plural, to make God ours. Yeah, he wanted some other way. But once it was clear that there was no other way, you don't see Jesus grow despondent or get discouraged. What you see is him becoming determined. He won't be deterred. No one has to chase him down or subdue him. They don't even have to put together a coherent case against him. He just sits there silently. Nothing about that suggests that it was easy. I mean, he's beaten up so badly, he can't even manage to drag his cross to the place of execution without help. And at one point he cries out in agony, feeling abandoned by God. I mean, the whole thing is just an agonizing story. But he does it. Why does Large yell into that infinite abyss? Why does he no longer feel compelled to, to, to numb himself with medication? Well, it's because of Sam. And why does Sam stop telling lies to cover her insecurities? Because of Large. Love, love makes sense of the world in ways that nothing else really can. It makes the chaos and noise of life bearable. Is it possible that the same hold tr holds true in the gospel story? That there's a love operating that makes sense even when things seem senseless? You know, Philip Pullman assumes that the gospel takes a turn toward the abyss because there's no God, that, there, that there's no someone who hears. There is no father. And that's why things become so agonizing. But what if, what if the story takes that turn precisely because there is a God? Because Jesus knows this God in ways that are simply beyond our imagining. There are bonds of love operating that the chaos can't undo. We can see the chaos, the agony, the abyss. We can see those things and see that they are terrifying. We can't imagine willingly walking into that. I mean, shouting into the infinite abyss is one thing. Jumping into it, as Jesus does, is another. But Jesus does. He does willingly. He does defiantly because he knows that as, as, that as deep as the abyss may be, it isn't infinite. He sees far beyond what we can see, that over and above the abyss there stands his loving Father. And he doesn't jump into the abyss, the abyss because he knows that. He jumps because we don't. We need to see that over and above the abyss, there stands our Father. And that is why we pray, our Father.
in heaven. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen.